Join me as I talk with people who express their creativity in ways that can inspire the rest of us to recognize our own creativity. And if you enjoy these conversations, please like, subscribe, and share them. Hello, and welcome to Creativity Conversations. This is episode 40, and I have the pleasure of talking with Judith Johnson. Judith, good morning. Good morning. Nice to have you here. Judith has a very rich and varied background, which is perfect for these kinds of conversations about the nature of creativity and how they appear in our lives. So I'm just going to start by reading a little snippet of Judith's bio, and we will explore from there. Author, mentor, and workshop leader, Judith Johnson holds two doctorates in social psychology and spiritual science, and she also has an MBA. She's an interfaith minister, hospital chaplain. Her upcoming book, Making Peace with Dying and Death, is scheduled for release in January of 2022. She has another book in the works, Consciously Thriving, which will be published in 2023. Judith has blogged for the Huffington Post. She's already written a best-selling book. She's taught in colleges and in prisons and continues to work as a chaplain at her local hospital. In her mentoring work, which is her primary focus, Judith's mission is to help you master the art of being you. Built upon the belief that beauty, creative expression, wisdom, and loving kindness are more the result of learning how to weather the disturbances of our lives rather than avoiding them. And Judith describes her role as a curator of actionable wisdom. Wow. And by the way, that's Zoe Chloe behind me. Whoops, there she goes. <laughs> well, as I was saying as we were starting, you can't have a Zoom call without some cat or dog appearing. So tell us a little bit more about your mentoring work. I mean, you've, you've had an interesting life. You started out in the corporate world and you left that world uh, once you had a... Um, an interaction or an exploration with a spiritual path. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about how your evolution has brought you into the mentoring work that you do now. Yeah, I think like um, many mentors, um, part of my work is the, is evolves out of my own personal experience. And um, I had a, I had a hard time as a child and um, had a very strong experience of being an outsider, looking in, not connecting, not feeling the support that I needed. And I've noticed that jumping to the present, that's one of the themes that I notice with many of my clients. Mm. And um, so I've spent a lot of my life researching and exploring the field of human consciousness. Um, and I've been fascinated by the fact that we don't come with a user's manual. <laughs> Nobody really teaches us how to think, how to handle our feelings. And I think that that's very much what many of us wish we had had earlier in our lives. Um, so, you know, again, I, I kept exploring what, how, how does this all work? You know, how does perception work? How does the processing of information work? And so when I do with my clients is very much listen very deeply to where the wounds are in them, because they always, you know, you'll hear phrases like, 
I never felt like I was good enough or I felt like an outsider looking in or some phrase like that. And I'll go back and explore it with them and unpack what, what the root of that is. Um, because what I find is we live in a society that orients our attention outward rather than inward. So nobody says, let's find out who you are. <laughs> let's nurture who you are. And instead we are oriented to pleasing others or trying to um, succeed according to some kind of external standard. So what I do with my clients is really get them to make that profound turn inward. And while many may think they've already done that on some level, um, you can tell by, by where the wounding is right now, what, you know, where, where we need to go further to um, free them. Where are they stuck? Where are they hurting? Yeah. And do you find that that focus on looking at the past is important for being able to be in the present now in this moment? Only if they're still carrying their past. <laughs> if they've left it behind, that's wonderful. But that's a lot of what I find the work is, is to let it go, unpack it. It's, in fact, I was on the phone with a client yesterday and I often provide um, homework assignments to my clients that are just very spontaneous. And I just had this image of her going to her backyard, digging a hole and writing on pieces of paper, all the wounds, all the hurt parts, you know, like when I was in that, in that pageant in fifth grade, blah, 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 blah. Because these were things that I noticed she was still carrying the hurt. And so the idea was, I want you to write all these little pieces of paper, dig this hole, put them all in the hole, set them on fire. And then when the fire is done, cover it over. So sometimes we just even need a simple ritual like that mm. to let go because it has to, you have to communicate to your consciousness. I'm done with that. I can leave that behind. Um, and to me, the question of, do, they, do we need to explore that in the present, again, is only if it's still being carried. Yeah. Okay. Because, it, go ahead. Excuse me. It sounds like one of the things that happens in that process is that you're giving people permission or reminding me that they no longer have to believe those things as true and a, determine, a, a determinant of their current behavior. Absolutely. And I think part of it is also um, teaching new skills and new ways of looking at yourself and new ways of comforting yourself um, and uh, more, have, more about having compassion than comfort. Because I noticed like for myself, um, when I was younger and when I was very lost, I comforted myself with food and with, you know, with other, other things that didn't really comfort me, but they were the go-to things that you thought was comforting, but they were ways that to shove down the feelings. And what I find is that the wounding is usually on the emotional level and that people have found uh, ways to push down feelings rather than to deal with them. And what I like to do is bring the feelings to the light of the day in the present and help hold the energy for the client to get to a place where that feeling isn't the boogeyman anymore. It's not so scary and that you've made it past that and you're okay now. So you don't have to be afraid of that. Yeah. You can let it go. So say more about that, if you would, about 
helping people realize that they don't have to be afraid of their feelings. About why they don't have to be afraid? Yeah. Um, it's because when we're young and when we get wounded initially, um, we don't have tools, we don't have perspective. And a lot of times we don't have anyone supporting us that can help us see things in a, in a more clear way. We're on our own. And um, so when you come to the present moment, if you're with somebody who can hold for you and explain to you, well, that was something that happened to you when you were a little girl, and now you're a grown woman, and how might you handle that differently now? And then I'll, you know, I'll brainstorm with them different techniques and tools of what can we do differently now? Because what happens is that when we're wounded, the response gets on autopilot. So anytime that particular vein of emotional distress gets triggered again, you've got all the past wounds on that same band reverberating. And so the, the actual incident that's happening isn't, isn't alone in it, in affecting the person. It's all the other things that are related. And we have autopilot responses. And so part of the work now in the present is to interrupt the autopilot responses and say, oh, we can do this differently. It kind of reminds me of that, that um, advertisement for V8, you know, where they go, oh, I could have had a V8. It's like, I can do this differently. And just really being lighthearted about that even. Even when the wound was very deep, we can be lighter about it when we know that we're safe. So that safety is really, I don't know, I guess in my mind, I would say that safety is really the ground of our being. It's not something that we need a technique to create because it's already within us. And the technique is just a doorway, if you yeah. will. Yeah, it's, it's like finding what's already there. Yeah. It's like we are safe, we are okay. Um, it, for some reason, it reminds me of an experience I had as a child. We used to go down to the um, Jersey Shore for two weeks every summer. And I remember collecting you know, little nickels and dimes and quarters in a metal Band-Aid box. Oh, I remember this. <laughs> yeah, to go to the, you know, go to the brides. And I remember going into the fun house and the fun house terrified me. It terrified me so much that my mother had to leave with me and take me out because it was unbearable. It was very frightening to me. And, you know, things get confused in, inside of us. Now, there wasn't anything there to hurt me, but this was another example of how it's all a matter of perception. If you feel scared, it's not necessarily because there's anything scary going on. It's because you react that way based on something in your past. So a lot of this is just unhooking old, old connections that are in our brains yeah, and our emotional wiring. I call it uh, renovating the scaffolding, the mental and emotional scaffolding upon which we're living our lives. And, you know, when you frame it in that way, people don't feel as traumatized because it's like, oh, okay, I can do a renovation. That's not such a scary idea. Yeah. I love that idea. For me, it speaks to that uh, creative 
resiliency that we all have so that it's not that we that whatever it is that we are renovating is built on solid ground which we just hadn't been aware of when we were initially hurt or caught up in some sort of difficult situation there's another metaphor in there which is you know the house that you grew up in so to speak wasn't of your choice <laughs> and now in the renovation you get to choose what the house is that you're going to live in that's a big big shift and it's very empowering to people yeah is it the same foundation sometimes renovating <laughs> sometimes when we renovate we relocate <laughs> <laughs> you know um you know, it's, it's the same foundation in the sense that, that you have the past you have. Mm. And, but what are you going to do with it? Are you going to learn from it? Are you going to um, carry it around as a wound the rest of your life? You know, it, it, what happened happened. And now here we are in this moment. Where does that belong now? You know? I have read that in the brain imagination and memory are very closely linked so that every time we rehash a memory doesn't matter whether it's a good one or a bad one we change it slightly so mm -hmm. it's never exactly what happened anymore so sometimes if it's been scary we embellish it you know and sometimes if it's been a happy one we get to embellish that but the fact that memory is so malleable, I think is really fortunate for us because when we have those memories that aren't suiting us and aren't serving us anymore, we don't have to keep them. Right. As, as you say, we can discard them. We can renovate our scaffolding. Yeah. It, it's also quite fascinating when, when you have an inquiry with another person who was, let, let's say you had a traumatic event and, and then you ask somebody else who was there, What's your memory of that? They might not even remember the event, let alone have, you know, have any kind of a, a memory that matches yours at all. It's all so personal. It is. And that is a really good point because most of us don't realize that reality is subjective. That it's what we see isn't necessarily what's going on in there, but whatever our past experiences are have largely triggered and, and, caused us to wear a certain set of glasses to view whatever it is in front of us. Right. I remember having a conversation with my brother. Um, he was, um, he, he's always been a loyal reader of my work and editor, and I've always been able to rely on him to be really honest in his take on, on what I've written. And um, he, was he was reading, editing the dying death book that's coming out in January. And there's a chat, there's a section that I put in there that was about this conversation. And it's called my truth, your truth, the truth, because his position was, hey, the truth is the truth. And I said, no, <laughs> you have your way of seeing the truth. I have my way of seeing the truth. And then there is what actually happened. You know, for example, I'm sitting on a chair right now. That's not something to be debated. That's that's like a truth. There is empirical truth. But then there's all of the interpretations. Yeah, yeah. I think that's where we can go downhill pretty quickly. Very quickly. <laughs> Just listen to any political argument. <laughs> yeah, 
exactly. Yeah. I wanted to just ask you to elaborate on some uh, a phrase that you use on your website, the Kintsugi path of living and dying. What does that mean? I, you know, I encountered that the word Kintsugi is, it, it's a description of a kind of Japanese pottery. And you may have seen pictures of a bowl that has been broken and reassembled with a gold paste. And as an art form, it's the, the metaphor is so beautiful because it carries the meaning that when we, we are more beautiful for being broken. And I think of that as uh, so true in, in terms of my own learning in life that the very things that we run away from and think, oh, I don't want to go near that. Um, those harder things of life have made us wiser and stronger and, you know, better able to endure the trials and tribulations of life. So I, I love that. So that's why I call it the Kintsugi path of living and dying. It's, it's a beautiful metaphor. I wish I had a photograph to, of a piece of ceramics that had that gold crack filling because it's a gorgeous analogy. Is, is it K-I-N-T? You have it written down, don't I you? I do, and that's how I see it spelled. Yeah, if you spell it, people can just look it up online and they'll see the pictures. Yeah, yeah, it's a wonderful metaphor. So when you say you're a curator of actionable wisdom, tell us more what that means. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I've been... Um, I'm one of those people who has gone through life seeking resonance. And to me, it's, it's like that aha moment that you have when you read something, it's like, oh yes. Um, the reason it's an oh yes is that it's a truth that you already know inside of you. And it's being awakened by seeing those words and feeling that message. Um, and, and so for me, um, what I have done all my life is collect those bits and pieces, you know, the napkin with a quote on it and all of that all over the place. Hopefully most of them have made it into my computer by now. Um, but I find that the, that wisdom comes in so many ways. It's like, I remember one time I had a, um, I had, when I first moved to the, this area, I live in the Hudson Valley of New York. And um, when I first came, I rented a house that kind of came with a caretaker and his name was Roy. And when Roy first appeared and started mowing the lawn and taking my garbage and things like that, we started a friendship and he was, a, an, I think he had a grade school education and he had eight or nine children, grew up in Pennsylvania. And he was one of the wisest people I knew. And sometimes we, he would stop in after mowing the lawn and we'd have a visit and I'd start complaining about something. Roy, don't you think blah, 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 blah. And he'd say, it's different. <laughs> and it was always, it's different. And I would try to get him to agree with me, you know, no, it's different. And that was one of the wisest things I ever heard. So I'm always looking for wisdom that um, can help people live better. And that's the actionable part, because if you can't move it into action, it's not really helpful. Might be an interesting statement, but if it doesn't resonate in a way that can help you live your life better, why bother? 
What do you think makes people more receptive to hearing something that can actually penetrate into them and allow them to have an aha moment? What a great question. What a great question. I think readiness to change. Because I think when people are rigid and have a myopic point of view, they're not interested in anything that expands their peripheral vision. They just, if something fits in here, they agree with it. If not, it's a no. But when people, it's, it's usually the pain and suffering of life where people feel something isn't working and they, they, want, they want it to be better. And it usually occurs on a feeling level. I find yeah. it's not a thought level. It's a feeling level. It's I'm hurting. Can't somebody help me hurt less. And, you know, I think we see that now on a global level. Yeah. We see the consequences of so many people's inner suffering being expressed in the world with the amount of racial inequity, with mm -hmm the degree of poverty, all of the um, fear of the other, that those, and the climate, you know what's happening to the earth. There's so much suffering going on that from our own misunderstandings now has spilled over into the world and is at very dangerous levels. Mm -hmm. So I think that readiness for change, keeping my fingers crossed here, something that uh, people are interested in responding to yeah because yeah. now it's now it's an imperative and we see that individually of course you know it's coaches or mentors but I think I I like to feel hopeful that it that message of okay let's let's fix this let's become whole not just individually but collectively mm -hmm. it's starting to spread it, it's you're reminding me of um, my first doctorate was so, in social psychology and my doctoral dissertation was um, about greed. It was an interdisciplinary study and spiritual interpretation of the causes, dynamics and consequences of greed in contemporary <laughs> American society. Oh. You always needed a title that was that long. But um, what I explored was really that issue of like you were using the term otherness and otherness is connected so deeply to whether we have a sense of expansiveness and abundance or limitation and scarcity. And when we think in terms of scarcity, a lot of people, and we'll see, we see this in political dynamics and things are drawn to keeping as much in their pile as possible and keeping other people out. And it, and they go into power struggles of us versus them. And that's one way of living. It's a very limited way of living. I know for myself, um, it's been fascinating to me to meet and know people who are so different from me. You know, to me, it's, um, it's, a sense, it's a piece of abundance. It makes the world greater to me to have many different kinds of people because I, what you see is different than what I see. So I don't want to live in just my little box. I want, I'm an explorer. I like to look at, you know, I want to look around and see what else is going on and how other people see things. To me, that's enriching. And it makes, it makes, quote, the pie bigger, not smaller. 
you know, so I think that that question of otherness related to scarcity or abundance is a very central theme in our lives. I would agree with you. I was just listening the other day to a talk by a, a non-dual teacher, Rupert Spira, and he was saying that one of the characteristics of our belief that we're separate is lack. Yeah. And that, of course, that leads down the road that you just mentioned, you know, that we are impoverished. We need to hoard things. We need to keep ourselves safe. And the other people are just on their own. That that understanding that we're not, that we're all connected, is very, very powerful. And I think going back to what you were talking about earlier, being wounded as we grew up, that that often prevents us from recognizing our shared oneness, our shared beingness. Because if, if somebody can hurt me, especially a parent or a sibling or someone in our childhood, then we tend to fear and pull back. Yeah. I, um, I had an amazing awareness at one time. And in fact, it was during the, um, my second doctoral dissertation. Both of those were just very profound experiences for me. And the second one, I focused on the topic of trust. And it was, um, I called my, my work a trust walk, a life, life as a trust walk from my way to Yahweh. And what I, at one point I was explaining to somebody this awareness that I was having. And I said, it is as though I've been living my life like this. If I can keep all the pain and suffering that far away from me, I will be okay. Don't come any closer. <laughs> And then I had this moment where I looked and I said, oh, my God, no wonder I have carpal tunnel syndrome and bone spurs in my shoulders. You know, I could see the emotional, physical connection to that. And then I, I learned to literally drop, pull my shoulders back and drop them at my side and try to open my heart to life and receive life in a different way. And I think that's very much what we have to do is when we, we come to a place where we understand, ah, maybe it's the way I perceive things that's causing me to suffer so much, you know? That's a very big piece. I agree with you. I think that is so not discussed yeah. in our world, and it's so needed that the more that you can share the work that you do, the better we're all going to be. Well, ditto. <laughs> you know, seriously, I mean, you know, I, I, I think it's a very interesting work that we do because it's about helping people to love themselves and to receive the truth of their experience and not to make it right or wrong, but just here I am in this moment. There are so many ways to go from this moment or in this moment, and it's really to start to learn how to have a cleaner sense of reality then perhaps you come to this moment with. I mean, I, I think that a lot of the work of being a good mentor is helping people to clean out their closets, you know, empty out the old stuff that you've been carrying and to start developing much greater love for yourself. I, I, I very often send my clients, of course, now we do everything on Zoom. I send them to the mirror to make eye contact with themselves. And most can't bear that at first. It's a, it's a deep 
process to really make eye contact with yourself and say, hello, how are you? I love you. And it sounds like, oh, yeah, really? And then you start hearing the reject the responses in your head. Oh, yeah, right. But it's to get people to come to a place where they can love that person. Because you have to make that contact with yourself to be able to authentically get beyond a mental level of talking the talk. Again, coming into actionable. And I'm going to make an assumption here that once people are able to do that, at least be willing to. Yeah. Sometimes the willingness has to precede the actual ability to do is that that can spill over into the rest of the world. You know, yeah. the practice, the Buddhist practice of Tonglen, of forgiveness yes. and, and compassion, starting with ourselves. And then we, once we're comfortable with that, we can extend it to a friend. And then once we're comfortable with that, we can extend it to somebody we don't quite agree with or like so much, you know, and we just keep taking it step by step. It's also, and I don't remember what the name of the practice is in, in Buddhism for this, but it's also the practice of recognizing that we are all working in a field of consciousness. Mm. And that if I clear something in my consciousness, I have removed a piece of garbage from our collective consciousness. So on some level, we are each doing our part collectively and also on behalf of others who share the same wound. And, you it's know, like the spiritual ecology, you know, it's an ecological it. system that we're cleaning up. That's right. And, and also, when you were mentioning the oneness before, I think it's very important to understand that because we live in, in such a visual world, um, and I shared this with you once before, is that um, the amount of information that is coming into us at any instant, 70% of it is visual. And so that, that's good news and bad news because it's kind of fascinating. But on the other hand, we rely so heavily on that that we don't develop the other senses and, and abilities quite as much. And also in terms of consciousness, um, it's very hard to perceive oneness when you see separate bodies. What can, how can you say we're one? You're over there, I'm over here, you know, blah, 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 space and time. But when you move beyond the space-time continuum, you get to the non-physical reality or the spiritual reality. And that is vibrationally where the oneness is reached. Yeah. Not in the visual field, but in the energetic field. And that's that, a great point. That is a oneness, yeah. Yeah. That, that spiritual field or energetic field however we describe it has has that shared consciousness to it shared yeah. awareness and we you're right we do tend to think that our awareness is our own our perceptions are our own and they they create oftentimes can create a wall between us and other people and yet and, it doesn't and on a different level that doesn't even exist exactly and also when we were talking about resonance before, you know, when I, when something resonates as true for me, I know that that other person who articulated that knows the truth that I know. I'm not alone anymore. We have gone into oneness. 
resonance brings us into oneness. And that's another reason why I love what I call actionable wisdom. You know, it helps us. We help each other. There's a, oh, there's a painting that I have a, that, that I kind of carry in my brain that this spiritual painter did. And I don't remember her name, or, or, but it was the gathering of the way showers. And it was an image of holy people in, in robes, walking from all different pathways, going to a common place. And some of them were turned, waving to those behind them, this way, this way. Each one of them has the ones who are, you know, it's like shepherds with their sheep. This way, this way. And we, we help each other along. And I really think it's one of the reasons I love my work because I get to do what I can. I'm not at the front of the lead. I'm not the first one of the, all the way showers and that doesn't even matter. I have certain people that come to me for help and they're mine to help. And it's a very humbling experience. Again, that's a question of resonance, isn't it? Yes, Who it resonates is. with your message? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's lovely. Now, I wanted to read a little something here uh, from your website, which <laughs> I thought it is quite in line with our creativity focus, that your work is about helping others to move beyond talk into the creative artistry of choosing how to live their lives. Yes. yes. Say more about that. Well, when we're, when we're wounded... Okay, and when our focus is on our hurt and on avoiding hurt, like me with my arms out, mm -hmm. you know, prior to dropping them, what we tend, how we tend to live our lives is avoiding pain and suffering. That seems to be the agenda. When we can uh, take the energy out of the wounds and stop carrying them in the present, we free ourselves to be able to look around and say, hey, Here's a new day. What do I want to do with this day? Do I want to go on a picnic? Do I want to read a book? Do I want to go visit clients, you know, visit patients at the hospital? Um, do I want to write? And so the creative artistry comes forward when we free our energy to be present and to be present in a loving relationship with ourselves. When we get out of the way, to me, it's, it's an exciting time when we get enough of our um, mental and emotional garbage cleared out of our head that we, instead of focusing on avoiding pain and suffering, we are free to go into, wow, here's a beautiful day. What do I want to do today? You know, do I want to write? Do I want to go smell some flowers? It's um, having, being available in the present moment to meet the moment and look at the options. You know, it's like, I have this beautiful bouquet of ranunculus sitting here with me, you know, and I, it's just, they, they blow my mind. I just love just to look at them, you know, so you start to learn how to live your life and bring into your life things that enrich you. Okay. Um, and in the creative process, um, allow yourself to flow in that process. So what was what was the moment for you, if there was one moment or a series of moments that allowed you to see that for yourself? Goodness, I don't know. I don't know. I just, you know, because it's been a long journey. 
Um, for example, I, I would have to say that the biggest turning point for me was when I found a spiritual path that worked for me. Um, and when I say it worked for me, it was a very interesting moment because it was as though there was a voice in my belly that said, I'm home. And I started sobbing because there was something that I recognized and I could not articulate it beyond that. But I started working in this particular path where there was so much wisdom and so much guidance for me about how to clean up the garbage I was carrying, about how to befriend and love myself. And so once I got doing that work, gradually, I lost, for example, I lost a lot of friends, which was one of the side things of it. And I think um, I was kind of moving from what would be, um, you know, getting on the phone with a friend and, oh, my God, would you believe what happened to me? And complain, complain, complain. And then, oh my God, let me tell you what happened to me. So that was how time was spent. And it got to the point where I, where I started saying, well, have you considered doing this? Or what about that? And people didn't want to hear it. The people that were in my life then didn't want to hear that. They were still in that other place. And I had to kind of grieve the loss of what the past was and move into this new journey that, I re that was pulling me forward and freeing me and bringing me to a place of freedom. In fact, um, somebody did my numerology once and I don't know this deep stuff about numerology, but I remember that I'm a three, two, five, which means expression plus cooperate. The three is expression. The two is cooperation. The five is freedom. My life path is about freedom. Okay. But I have to express myself before I'm going to cooperate. <laughs> <laughs> Are you making it conditional? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like, you know, getting to know those kinds of things about yourself. And one of the things that I find most fascinating is I am essentially an incredibly joyful person. But if you met me 30, 40 years ago, you would not have seen my joy. You would have seen my pain. You know, so the more that we can clean ourselves out, the freer we get to be who we really are under there. Oh, I love what you're saying. Do you think there's a difference fundamentally between loving ourselves and loving the world? Hmm. I think it's pretty hard. Okay. I think that a lot of people are confused about what love is. Let me start with that. Um, and John Roger, who's my primary spiritual teacher, he's no longer alive, but I remember being so alarmed at a statement he made that when you love somebody, it's not them. It's that when I'm in your presence, that place inside of me that is loving comes alive and vibrates. So whether it's the world or another person, that's the real love stuff. But I think people put a lot of, um, they pay too much attention to what I would call romantic love. And they think that's love, love, love. That's not the entirety of love. That's romantic love. And that, that's not as, that doesn't go as deeply. But when we get awakened and connected with another person into that kind of a oneness, you know, whether it's looking at the ranunculus or, or loving another human being, when it's really coming from a deep place of, of resonance and oneness, that's a whole different ball game. 
Well, you know you're preaching to the choir no. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, but I totally agree with you on that. And I think that, you know, I've told you about this Love in Action program that I've been running where the topics that we discover, discover and discuss every week are really uh, doorways or portals to our being. It's not about the doingness of, of this is how I love someone else. It's more of this is who I am. This is my nature. This is my true nature to be loving, to be happy, to be joyful. We just cover it over from our experiences in life thinking that's the best way to live. And yet, as you say, once we realize it can be a ranunculus, it can be our cat, it can be the sunrise, it can be the daffodil, that, that's just the, it's, it's not the way it reveals who we really are. And I love the, that you're sharing this also because it just seems like it makes more sense. You know, it's not exclusive. Love isn't exclusive. It's not like, okay, you're going to get 30% of my love today unless you behave rudely towards me, and then it'll go down to 10%. If you're lucky. <laughs> if you're lucky, right. You know, um, in talking about being versus doing, that, as you know, is one of my very favorite themes. And um, in fact, I shared with you that I had this awareness a couple of weeks ago that Frank Sinatra is famous for doobie doobie doo. And I turned it around, be do be do be, because we must learn to be who we are. And if we do things in the world from that place of being, it's a whole new ball game. But when we're doing the doing first and we don't know who we are, that's when we run into trouble. Yeah. That's when we run into trouble. And that's the profound shift that we have to make. It sounds like for you, you really came into your own once you had that, if you don't mind my calling it this, a spiritual understanding is that yeah. it yeah. shifted from the, the doing to the being. And the being became the motivating factor for how you lived your life from that moment onwards. Yeah, and it also, um, it awakened, it awakened um, a level of consciousness in me that hadn't been there. I was so focused and, and beaten down by my suffering that, you know, I had the myopic vision of suffering and then, and I didn't know how to get out of it. And all of a sudden I started being shown how to get altitude above my suffering. And so, for example, let's say you and I had a fight and we pushed away from each other. If I got altitude and got above the situation, I could look and say, well, I wonder what was really going on for Nina and what, what, what got triggered for her. And, and well, my feelings got hurt when she said thus and so. And like, you get to see how, oh, we just had a misunderstanding and you can come back. But so the wounds don't become so fatal when you start learning how to see things differently and to see through the eyes of love and compassion. Because, you know, that, that's another thing that, you know, you hear the term unconditional loving. And I really don't think that we as human beings are capable of unconditional loving. I think that spiritually, that's where the oneness is. But in the human form, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to have arguments. We're going to fumble and fail. You know, somebody's going to forget to send you a card for your birthday. 
oh, God forbid, you know? So it's humbling to be human. You know, there is no perfection here, but there are a lot of lessons to be learned. And a lot of joy to be had. Oh, yeah. Have a ranuncula. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I wonder if we could shift gears and talk about your experience of caretaking for your mother and this book that came out of it. Yes. Um, right. So the book, first of all, is the, uh, is the fulfillment of a deathbed promise to my mother. She died in December 2006. And she grabbed my arm and she said, promise me that you will write about what we have learned together about dying in this country. And um, I have always been obedient to my mommy. <laughs> and so it took me 14 years, 15 years to get that book to the form that I wanted it in. It, it was five different books along the way. But the caregiving, my mother and I shared a home the last nine years of her life. And the, the huge drama was the last six months. But in that nine years, uh, my mother died when she was 89. So from 80 to 89, um, I, I, was, I was cohabitating with somebody whose eyesight was going, her hearing was going. She couldn't, she got to a point where she couldn't drive and I'd have to be her chauffeur. Little by little, my life became that of a caregiver rather than a mother and a daughter sharing a home together. And there is a balancing act that goes on in caregiving um, that has to do with really respecting the autonomy of the person that you're serving. Like I remember one battle that we used to have when she got on oxygen and she was using a walker to get from her bed to the toilet. And I would always ask her, could you wait until I get set behind you so I can keep the tubing of the oxygen from getting caught under your walker? And she would just get on the walker and go. <laughs> and, you know, it, it, was, it, it was a struggle moment. And I always, I always had to remind myself, surrender, and that this is her process, not mine. But you sometimes get so caught up as a caregiver trying to do it right do your best because you love this person. Um, but, you know, I didn't sign up for it. I got thrown into it. It's like one day um, I had come home early from an event I had gone to and my mother loved when I read to her. She was, had lost so much of her sight at that point that I would read to her. And we would go on these book adventures where we'd go into other worlds together. And it was charming and it was delightful and it it brought us closer and closer together. And we were about to read and she needed to go to the bathroom. I, we were on the, in the living room and she had to go up a flight of, I think, 10 stairs to go to the bathroom. It was a hot day. She had her cane in one hand and a little portable fan in the other. And she got to the eighth step and she lost her balance and she fell backwards and cracked her head against a piece of furniture at the bottom of the stairs. Now, my mother was an RN and the most practical woman I ever met. And when I heard the crack, I didn't know, I was over there on the sofa. I didn't know if she was alive or dead. Was she, um, I, I didn't know what I was going to find. And I, I was terrified, but I got there and she had blood that was spurting out of her head to the rhythm of her pulse. 
and also out of her elbow. And she simply said, elevate my head, hold your hand on there and hold your hand on there and call 911. With your third hand? My third hand. <laughs> but anyway, that was how it started. And then I got thrown into this whole journey where we were in and out of the emergency room, the hospital, making all of these decisions. And I just want to make a shout out to hospice that anybody who thinks that hospice is giving up, no, hospice is having angels abduct you to get through the process of the end of life. They are awesome. And I was so grateful that we had them at the end because none of us really know how to do dying and death very well. And that's what I wrote the book about to help people become more familiar with what is that all about and how do we how do we be loving and rise to the occasion for each other and respect the journey of the one who's dying and not try to do it our way let them do it their way so wow yeah it was a, quite a journey well it's uh i'm glad you wrote this book i'm going to want to read it I'm <laughs> I had a very similar situation with my mother. She died the same year that your mother did, and she had congestive heart failure and uh, COPD. So she was gradually losing her ability to think and make decisions and breathe, and the same thing with the oxygen. And that, that giving way to really caring for someone regardless of, of how they are coping with it. Mm -hmm. Honoring that is such a gift for that person. And as you were saying with hospice, and I totally agree with you about that, is that when they were talking to me about my mother's soon passing, they, they were saying to me, for you, you're just losing, just to be taken somewhat, lightly you're just losing your mother one person but she's losing the whole world yeah everything yeah. yeah and if that doesn't elicit compassion i don't know what will because that's going to happen to us too and and also um you know there's another point in there about dying and death that i think is so critically important and that's for us to really pay attention to what we believe about life and death and a lot of people don't think about it. They think, oh, I don't have to think about that. I th I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to go do this. I'm going to go do that. And I just really encourage people to think, first of all, what do you mean when you say the word I? You know, it's like um, I have an exercise in, in one of my books that is, what is I? <laughs> you know, who is that? I mean, is I, like for me, I'm a soul and I am in an embodiment as Judith Johnson. And in my personal belief system, um, I'm here to balance out karmic accretions from past lifetimes, to learn life lessons, and to be of service. Now, that's super clear to me. That's what I'm here to do. But along with that, I also have the reality, the sense that when I die, what's dying is my body. Judith Johnson will be dying, but that the soul that I am goes on. And that's my belief. You don't have to share that belief, but it's important that you know what yours is because that will profoundly affect your process of dying. For me, when I'm dying, 
I just want to chant the spiritual tones of my initiations to keep connected to the spiritual path that I'm on. And to me, that's not a sad moment. It's, it's a joyful moment. I, I will have completed this life. But for a lot of people, there is such hidden trauma about death. And I really encourage people to think about what does that mean to you? And why is it traumatic for you? What do you think dies? And also the importance of making completions. Mm. Really, really important to do, to do completions. Say a little bit more about that, completions. Well, for example, some people say, oh, well, you know, I've just been a housewife all my life. I'm not anybody important. Everybody's important. You know, I'm the mother to my cats. I'm important to them, you know. Um, and not to dismiss ourselves, but to celebrate what has my life been about? Like there's a part of my book that goes into asking people to keep a legacy journal where they, um, you know, maybe it's the collage, maybe it's a, a keynote, uh, you know, address with audio and, and picture album kind of thing. But to document your life and what you've learned and pass it on. There's research about the fact that children do better in school. Children are better adjusted if they understand the connections they have to other generations. Mm. I forget the name of the, of the, the research thing. I have it in the, in the book there, but it's really important. It's important for us to tell our stories and to share what we've learned and what matters to us. There's nothing worse than going to a funeral or a memorial service where you don't feel the energy of that person and you don't feel a celebration of them, mm. you know? Yeah. So the completions, um, if you have unfinished emotional business with somebody, write them a letter, pick up the phone, whatever way, or write a letter and burn it. <laughs> But do something to complete it in yourself, whether or not you complete it with that other person. Make peace with yourself. You know, I noticed for myself, for example, it was an issue. What am I going to do about, what if I die and what about my cats? That was my first thing. What about my cats? Well, I've got that arranged. You take care of what matters. I'm in the process of trying to downsize. I have too much stuff. You know, I don't want, when I die, I don't want other people to have to suffer through figuring out what to do with all of this. I want to do as much as I can ahead of time. Well, those are the kinds of completions. And those are both, they're striking me both as creative and compassionate. Yeah. Yeah. It's so funny. If somebody, of course, these days, nobody comes to your house, but there've been a number of times when people come to my house and said, Oh, I love that. And I said, it's yours. <laughs> Cause for me, I, I kind of like having things go knowing that things are going to somebody who's got energy around them. Yes. Very true. Yeah. You ask good questions. Thank you. I'm going to ask you another one because I'm, I took another few notes from your website uh, where you've talked about holding love as a sacred priority. Yes. Yeah. Can you say um, a little more about that? Yeah. I, I think that it's so easy to get lost in this world with being too concerned about things that aren't going the way we want them to go or something like that. And I think if we always come home to love, that place of, of oneness that vibrates in us, it's kind of like, oh, I can do it from there. You can do anything from a place of loving. 
you know, and I think that when we're lost, I, I, I have the image in my head of like a, a toddler and the mother's legs, you know, and the toddler taking a few steps away and then coming back and wrapping around mommy's leg for safety. I think that for the rest of our lives, that place, when we become familiar with that place of loving, that's, that's that for us for the rest of our lives. That's home. Yeah. That's home. I mean, I say that, you know, there's nothing more important than loving ourselves and each other. And it's, I think it's very important to look at what do we make more important than loving. <clears throat> I have a program that I do with couples um, where I work with them really from the thematics of the wedding vow, you know, in their finest finery and all of this, they gather and everybody's so happy and they're vowing to love, honor and cherish each other. And I work with them on their wedding vows before that moment, because I want to know, what do you mean by that? How are you going to serve this other human being? Like when you become somebody's spouse, their partner, you are taking on a really precious, influential role in their life. How are you going to, what, what is your promise? It's not just, oh, yeah, let's get married. It's going to be good. It's not like that. It's like, how am I going to love you when you're not being the way that I love you to be? You know, how am I going to love you when you're sick? How am I going to honor you when your needs are not the same as mine? And how do I show my love for you? How do I show you that I cherish you? You know, it's when somebody sends me flowers, I know that they get me, you know, because they know I love them. So it's so much about coming to that place of love. There is nothing more important. And when we make something else more important than loving, we should take, a, you know, we should take five and go in the corner and think about why am I making something else more important with this person? And especially if that person's yourself. Yeah. Or our own lives. Yeah. 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 Our own lives, I should say. Yeah. Yeah. And, and really to know that, all I really have to do is be me <laughs> and with as much loving towards myself and others as possible. That's a real clean agenda. And if we can just stick to that agenda um, and everybody's basically tending their own garden, we're in a much better place. So true. It reminds me of a line from uh, Plato, the unexamined life is not mm -hmm. worth living. Yeah. And if we take the time as you're inviting us to do to just ask some of those questions, what is it really? Why is this my motivation? And is it really in alignment with what I really believe and value that that can be those can be transformative questions? Yeah. And it takes courage it, 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 and, and, and humility to drop down our weapons and our judgments of each other. It's like, yes, maybe you do something that I don't like, but is that a reason to cancel you? <laughs> to withhold my love? I, I talk to, uh, when I work with couples, I talk to them about what I call the four doors of love. So that um, in order for love to flow between two people, there are four doors that have to be open. I have to give, keep the door open 
for my love to flow from me to you. And you have to have your door open to receive my love and vice versa. And I always say to couples, the surest way to healing a conflict is to, with humility, ask yourself, which of those doors just got slammed shut? Did I shut my heart to you? Did you shut your heart to me? Did I withhold my love from you? Did you withhold yours from me? You know, it really can be that simple, but it's that simple in concept, but not so much in the, in the doing. It takes a lot of humility to say, yeah, I took my love back from you. I got mad, I'm sorry. But what an act of freedom. Yeah, yeah, and empowerment to know that I can do that. I don't have to stay mad. I can let go of the mad. Yeah. I prefer to come back to the love. You know, I'm reminded of how many people I've spoken to who are over 30, over 40, over 50, who come to a very similar conclusion that the thing that matters most in life is kindness and love. Yeah. It's not about our accomplishments. It's not about climbing the corporate ladder. It's not about how many friends we have on Facebook, all of the, the doing aspects of right. life. And for those people who are earlier on in their journeys and are younger, if, as they have that understanding and they can incorporate it, especially with the kinds of things that you're sharing, that that really can make all the difference in not only changing our individual lives, but giving people permission to change their lives as well, to yeah. be more expansive, to be more inclusive, to be more generous. And we need that now. Yeah, and, and I know in myself, I have such idealism and, and impatience that I would like to feed that pill of understanding about love to babies and have them know that. But the, the deeper part of me knows that the wisdom is very often gained through stumbling and falling. And that only when we have had the, the hurt and the wounding can we really appreciate what love is and what it means to be comforted when we're hurting and what it means to have that connection? Um, you know, somehow this is a funny world. It, you know, it was created with, with the, this dual, dualism and it's within the context of the dualism that either we stay in the tumult or we find our way to create, promote, and allow more loving by choice, you know, and, and it is, it's a choice. And, and it, the choice comes from finding out that there's an alternative and choosing it yeah. again and again and again and again. Yeah. Yeah. The, the hero's journey or the heroine's journey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this has been a lovely conversation, and I'm so glad that you took the time to come and chat with me. I wonder if you could just let people know what you're up to these days and the mentoring work that you do and where they can find you. Okay. Um, first of all, my website is currently under reconstruction. So what's there now is evolving. Um, 
the best way to reach me is at judith at judithjohnson.com. Um, so people can email me there. Um, and my work is, you'll, you'll, if you contact me, I can let you know about my mentoring work and, and things like that. I also um, do a lot of blogging. On my website, under the blog section, there's a tremendous amount of blogs that I've posted on Huffington Post and other places, but I keep a library of them on my website on consciousness, about relationships, and about death and dying. Um, yeah. Did I answer what you just asked? I think so. Oh, good. All right. So your website is judithjohnson.com. Right. And everyone can find out at least a little bit of what they'd like to know. And then when they talk to you, they'll find out even more. Yes. Great. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you again. It's so easy. Beg your pardon? You make this conversation so easy. Well, thank you. It's <laughs> fun to know one. That's what I always say. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. And thank you everyone for watching or listening. Be well and we will see you again next time. Bye for now. Thank you.